my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Ruan Lingyu. I probably said that a little bit incorrectly. Buckle in to have a bunch of names said completely wrong by me. We did a whole episode on Seijin Suzuki where we mispronounced his name. We call, <laughs> call him Seijin Suzuki. So yeah, that's something that you have to come to ready at the Important Cinema Club as kind of... Um, you know, approachable, you know, fun, every fun guys. Yeah, we're not going to get everything right. So Ruan Lingyu is a subject that you brought to the table. She's an actress that worked in the early 30s in China. And what was it about her work that made you want to discuss it, Will? She's somebody who is kind of, you know, a Marlena Dietrich or Greta Garbo style legend of Chinese cinema. She also is kind of a Marilyn Monroe style legend because she committed suicide when she was very young and that pretty close to the height of her stardom. She was mm-hmm. 24. She's interesting for to me for a couple of reasons. Her life story was told in Stanley Kwan's famous film, Center Stage, also known as Actress, where Maggie Chung played her. I think I might have seen a clip from one of her movies in Mark Cousins' The Story of Film documentary, mm-hmm. where he would, which, you know... It, Are you going to do your Mark Cousins voice now? Or and you're then, like... in 1934, in China, an actress, running you, did something new, something innovative. <laughs> I mean, the story of film is a really interesting and comprehensive documentary uh, that's, you you know, narrated in... uh, Yeah, I also think it gets less good as it goes along. (laughs) Yeah, it does. That's just my opinion. But anyway, uh, he showed a clip from one of her movies trying to make a case for her as sort of a precursor to, you know... James Dean and Brando in their naturalistic style of acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't know enough about her to say if that judgment holds water. I, I think that this is one of those episodes where me and you are at a massive disadvantage mm-hmm. is that because her films, like we said, came out in the early 30s, like the most popular ones, like The Goddess. Little mm-hmm. Toys. And that like we don't understand how important they were. But I did want to learn about yeah. a bit about that this week because they emerged from a very specific period of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. They came from the Shanghai of the early 30s, back when it was thought of as, it was nicknamed the Paris of Asia. And it was this bustling, slightly seamy center full of uh, intellectuals and revolutionaries and sex workers and mm-hmm. sailors, just a very interesting period of history to look at. And I guess the last thing I'm interested in about Ruan Ling Yu is she's an example of how a star's private and public selves can really merge. Yeah, and lead yeah. to a tragic end. Yeah, and, you know, her own on screen persona as this suffering symbol for all of China's suffering is hard to divorce from her own short and tragic life. And that's part of why she's a legend. uh, There's a handful of her films that are currently available. A lot of them have been lost to time. I think there are only six of them that are available and she made over 20. And so like me and you watched The Goddess today, Mm -hmm. which is often considered her most famous picture. Some Chinese filmmakers say it's their favorite movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And that's an opinion that actually only kind of formulated in the early 90s because of uh, Center State. We'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. And so The Goddess is a film where Ruan Lingyu plays a street worker 
a lady of the night, if you will, mm-hmm. a prostitute. Yeah, she became a prostitute to support her son because mm-hmm. that's the only way she could make a living. And one night when she's evading the police, she runs into this guy's apartment and he protects her from the police. And he says, well, hey, you know, while you're here, I can think of a way you can repay me. And then the next day he finds where she lives. And basically he says, you're my property now. I'm controlling you. There's nothing you can do about it. And she tries to escape. Uh, she takes agency and he just finds her and he's like, nope, you're not going anywhere. If you do, I will kill your son. Mm-hmm. And what the film's story ends up being is that she just wants the best life for her son. Mm-hmm. And this is difficult being a prostitute because she's being judged by everybody else and she can only get her son the education that he deserves if she raises the money by working on the street. Yeah, and when she does get her son enrolled in a school, word quickly gets around about what her job is. Parents are petitioning to have the son expelled from school. The kindly headmaster of the school says, we can't do that to the son. That's wrong. We have to help break the cycle of poverty and misery. Uh, But he ends up being forced to resign. And, uh, you know, I hate to spoil the goddess because I quite like it. So maybe just fast forward (laughs) ahead. But it ends up when her pimp, this bad man, steals all of her money. Uh, She goes and kills him, is sentenced to 12 years in prison, and the former headmaster says he's going to adopt her son and raise him as his own so that he can get the life he always deserved. Now, this is a a silent film. It was from 1934, but sound only came to uh, China much later than Mm -hmm. it did in America. What did you think of the film? Uh, I thought it was good, but I wasn't blown away by it by any stretch of the imagination. I think that doing more research into her filmography also kind of hurt the film because what she was famous for was essentially like uh, misery pornography (laughs) where she would play these kind of prostitutes or women that would get into trouble and then die by the end of the picture, which would create the drama. And usually she would save the life of a child or a family member. Well, she's inseparable from the cultural context in which her movies emerged in Shanghai at the time. And I am by no means an expert on this topic, Mm -hmm. but there were two big factions in Shanghai. There was the Chinese Communist Party, which was uh, in those days more left wing. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to take control of the government. And there was the more right wing Kuomintang government led by Chiang Kai-shek. And, Meanwhile, in the midst of all that, there were were also the Japanese, and they were slowly making inroads in the country, Mm -hmm. taking it over. So those two political factions, plus a rising nationalism, were kind of the three ideological factors influencing filmmaking at the time. So a lot of the films that Ruan Ling Yu made, she was very symbolic for all of China's suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, And very much about, you know, the subtext of them would be either this encroaching imperialism or this modernity that was taking over the country or class struggle. But I think it's important that when you say it like that, listeners could picture an image of Ruan Ling Yu, her performances being very propaganda-ish. They're very big, too. Yeah, and they're not. I think that Ruan Ling Yu, her popularity stemmed from the fact that her roles are played very realistically. Mm-hmm. While I say that what she is doing through almost all of her films is suffering, the way that she does it is that she plays it over her face and that she's given the space and the time to react in things in a realistic manner. Her performances are quite internalized. 
the moment that really leapt out at me in The Goddess and that uh, Stanley Kwan actually restages in Center Stage is that moment when the pimp says to her, you know how you ought to thank me, right? And then she gives this look to her face where she sort of rolls her eyes and then she sort of ambles across the room and then she sits on a table. Like, there's something in her in her face that conveys this is my lot in life. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing I can do about it. And I'm also, I'm not even really shocked or offended or upset by this. Uh, I'm not even all that frustrated by it. It's just, yeah, this is what it is. When I was a kid in elementary school, one of my teachers showed us a silent film and they prefaced it with, listen, the performances are going to be really over the top. So you just got to be used to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an assumption a lot of people bring when they watch silent mm-hmm. uh, film is that like, oh, people can't vocalize their emotions. So they're going to make it in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And Ruan Ling Yu in these films, the way that she kind of reacts to certain situations. And like you said, that complexity that's kind of going through her mind. There's a sequence where she's at a recital for her son, who's like in a talent show. And there's a rumor that starts that goes through all the other mothers that, oh, that woman, she's actually a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And there's like a close up of her face and her realizing that they're discussing that that just hurts so much Mm -hmm. and that it's done in a way that is like the definition of good acting there's another incredible moment where it's the moment where the pimp follows her back to her apartment and he breaks in with two of his friends and she turns around and she gives this look this very tepid smile that she gives this almost like geisha like smile Mm -hmm. uh, because she has to do the smile but she also like kind of groans a little bit with her face and she nods her head and what is conveyed in her face is not the horror of home invasion which it would be for most people but just tiredness yeah and a going through the motions i feel that with her films though the reason that like i approach with a bit of trepidation is that like i know that they're all going to be what the goddess is okay and from the research i've done yeah that's what they all are like whether it be like little toys or new women, it's going to be watching her suffer. And I think that as like a modern day moviegoer, I'm just like, well, I don't want to watch that. (laughs) Like, I know like what it's going to be. And I think those are just my own presumptions. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, you know, we We just want fun, right? We just want to have a laugh. There are certain stories that we don't necessarily gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are films of their time. Um, But that said, I was quite moved by The Goddess, I have to say. I think the story, you know, it's a real tearjerker story. It's a very kind of liberal-minded film about... I mean, it's about as progressive as you could get at the time. You know, the the way that censorship worked in Shanghai at the time was very much like the production code in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. The person's crimes have to be punished at the end of the film. She can't keep her son at the end of the film. That said, the villains of the film are the closed-minded people who wouldn't accept her in society. And it's important to realize as well as that the film was constructed through a film company called uh, Lianhua, also known as United Photoplay, Mm -hmm. and that they had kind of a house style that is like this humanistic, uh, often female-centered, and there's even like a touch of realism, even before like neorealism took place in Italy. So after The Goddess, Ruan Lingyu would go on to star in a movie called uh, New Women. Mm -hmm. And this film is important, not just because it was one of the last one she made before she died, 
but that it was about exactly the reasons that she did commit suicide. It was a story of an actress who was hounded by the tabloid press and that she couldn't take it. And as a way to kind of keep respect for her family, she killed herself. Mm -hmm. And it was based on a true story that actually happened. Yeah, she has an interesting life story, I guess. You know, she, her father died. This is Ruan Ling Yu I'm talking about. Her father died uh, when she was very young and she was raised by a single mother. And she was like a real, like, working class Mm -hmm. star. And, you know, that those would be the roles that would also make her famous. She worked in the 1910s and in some of the 1920s in you know bit part or extra roles or supporting roles but it was working at this company Linhua that she you know became the star that she would become and she was defined as the role of usually like the prostitute or the working class person she did have a few kind of like swerves where she would play like the heroic kind of not freedom fighter but person kind of standing up that would still die at the end of the movie in center stage they talk about how they want to kind of change her image and if she could do both roles like heroic person and a working class person that she would be invincible as stanley kwan by the way says in that film in a documentary segment he says that her favorite expression is looking up to heaven in forlorn wordlessness (laughs) so center stage was directed by stanley kwan it came out in 1991 And it is, like, one of the Hong Kong art films per excellence. When you're getting into Hong Kong and you're like, man, I don't want those Kung Fu stuff. What else do you got for me? Like, that's one of the ones that people will recommend. And by the way, Hong Kong is not a film industry that's really known for its art cinema. No. There's Wong Kar Wai. Yes. And there's Stanley Kwan. And Anne Hugh also worked in that kind of field. Yeah, that's true. Uh, But something like Center Stage could only be made with one of the leaders of Hong Kong cinema there to back it because our man Jackie Chan is a producer on this. I was very happy to see the Golden Way production logo before. I was very happy that it said a Leonard Ho, Jackie Chan film at the start, even though he didn't direct it. I mean, Jackie Chan, not a sophisticated man. Mm -mm. I assume that he backed this movie out of loyalty to his police story star Maggie Chung mm-hmm. who stars as Ruan Ling Yu. And this role for Maggie Chung was an opportunity to change uh, the way she was perceived in Hong Kong consciousness because for a long time she was known as doing flower vase roles and that's a term to use to be described you know pretty actresses who actually aren't very good at acting she was you know Jackie Chan's girlfriend in a bunch of movies or she was a you know a comedian she was mm-hmm. in paper marriage with Sam Hung, stuff like that yeah but always supporting roles or like sub supporting roles center stage is you know it is a biopic of Ruan Ling Yu but it's not a biopic where it's simply a recitation of facts. It's mm-hmm. not a Richard Attenborough-style biopic. It's maybe I don't know enough about Bertolt Brecht to be throwing around the term Brechtian. I think you're you're okay there. I'm, I'm okay in this case because it goes back and forth between these very loving recreations of vignettes, really, from Ruan Ling Yu's life and reimaginings of what some of her lost films might have been and present-day documentary footage of... Stanley Kwan and Maggie Chung making the film we're watching. Mm -hmm. Or even being interviewed uh, about the film and answering questions about how they would be perceived if they committed suicide. And I got to point out in a very artificial way, like there'll be an interview with Maggie Mm -hmm. Chung and Stanley Kwong will be reflected over her shoulder because he's in a mirror so they can rack focus between both of them. Yeah, but they do raise, you know, the point, why are we making a film about mm-hmm. Ruan Ling Yu? Would we be making a film had she lived? Probably not. No. Um, but 
you know, as uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who is a, a big admirer of the film, he calls it his favorite Chinese film of all time. He said, and I quote, the movie keeps depositing you in privileged pockets of historical space, setting you loose in a recreated world and asking you to find your own way in it. It's a biopic that's less interested in in the facts of her life than in sort of the aesthetics of the era where she came from. And I think it's a film that I would have been completely lost in if I hadn't done more research before watching it, because stuff that had happened in her life suddenly became clear. Like, I'm like, oh, I know that when the kind of framework of the movie assumes you already know this stuff. Yeah. But but like it's it's gobsmackingly beautiful film. Yeah, it's in definitely kind of a in that YY. I was going to say it's yeah. all about the dresses that uh, people wear and the the wallpaper. wallpaper in the back and how those kind of like, you know, or, work together. Or you know, quieter moments where like the wind is blowing through mm-hmm. the window and you see the curtain uh dancing in it and there are long scenes where it just sort of invites you to you know, spend time with Ruan Ling Yu and her environments. The suicide scene is extended beyond all reason. You know, you're simply spending time with her in this moment. You know, the thing that really comes across for me is like the isolation of mm. Ruan Ling Yu. Like, you don't get a broad sense of what Shanghai was like in this time. You know, there's a dance hall, there, there's a movie studio, there's a bathhouse at one point, but it's oftentimes Ruan Ling Yu and a couple of people close to her in you know rooms yeah spending time with each other and oftentimes scenes where Ruan Ling Yu is talking to her husband or her lover they're not even in the same shot together and I can understand the kind of attractiveness with that formalism right Mm -hmm. that the whole movie is kind of not only deconstructing why this kind of movie exists Mm -hmm. but also presenting them in these kind of cold detached ways of beautiful images and that's the issue that i had when i watched it was like i understand what this is but it's not moving me in any way yeah like i never got a sense of who she was because of those pockets of images that it's giving and it's always pulling out of it to see the other side of the curtain. I found something kind of intriguing about that because I also didn't get a great sense of who she was from Mm -hmm. it either. But there's something about the film and Maggie Chung's performance that I feel like takes its cue from the Ruan Ling Yu performances where like, maybe I don't know, maybe I'm projecting projecting onto this, but like Ruan Ling Yu is so internal and leaves so much to herself. Maggie Chung's Ruan Ling Yu is also very opaque. But I feel that when you watch a Ruan Ling Yu role, and I say when you, when you watch, I mean the goddess, the one that we watched. watched. (laughs) Um, Even though that actually uh, center stage does have moments from her films that Mm -hmm. are throughout is that there is kind of that emotion, like you teared up when you watch The Goddess. And Maggie Chung's decision is to play Ron Ling Yu as kind of cold and opaque throughout mm-hmm. the entire film. And while she's in emotional situations where she's like playing with her daughter or she's meeting her husband or her second husband afterwards, there's never a sense of, I felt like, intimacy emotionally other than like the visual one that's presented. I found the movie very powerful in a way. So... Uh, after I watched the movie, I actually went to go watch Rouge, Stanley Kwong's mm-hmm. other film. And I loved Rouge. Mm-hmm. And it's doing a lot of the same things. Rouge is a more conventional melodrama. But it's also a deconstruction of a melodrama mm-hmm. because it's all about this idea of falling in love, not being able to have that love, and then both people committing suicide. And what Rouge is actually about is about one of those people coming back to modern day Hong Kong in the 80s, played by Anita Moy, and going, my lover never came back to hell with me. Where is he? Mm-hmm. Help me find him. 
it's doing that meta-ness kind of like commenting on the previous story Mm -hmm. because the person that's helping the ghosts are commenting on the action going, wait, would you have committed suicide if... Like, we couldn't be together. And they're like, no, I wouldn't do that. Like, I don't understand that. Mm. And like, is there value in this? Like, does this romanticism mean something real? Or is it just something that happens in a passionate moment and then it's gone? And the way that Stanley Kwan does this is through having Anita Moy play it very coldly. Mm. And she's kind of like very beautiful looking. The film starts with her in like a dress that matches the wallpaper behind her. He's playing in all these kind of, you know, tricks But he's doing it, like you said, within the confines of a 90-minute movie, Mm -hmm. telling a more conventional story. While Center Stage is a two-hour-and-a-half kind of, like, deconstruction of all this stuff. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to talk about Center Stage because I it it kind of hits me on on some level. I don't know. I don't know what to say. We've talked about this before, though, that that kind of, like, cold detachment moves you more than it moves me. Yeah, I think so. Who I'm just, like, a hot-tempered, like, go-get-it kind of person. Yeah, well, you... It's like in the mood for love. Mm-hmm. It has a similar tone to that movie, but also I think I f- I felt myself on a more basic level, kind of wrapped up in the uh, sensual qualities of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, just the the the, the, the visual qualities, the images, and the sound and yeah. the light and everything mm-hmm. like that. And you know, I couldn't explain to you why I found it moving. Maybe I could if I if I had more time. But the fact that the movie never lets you forget it's Maggie Chung playing Ruan Lingyu and never lets you forget that it's an artificially constructed version of her life made by a group of curious modern day filmmakers that that's interesting to me i don't know why i find it so moving but i do and there's even an echo like at the time when it's made like maggie chung she doesn't know what her career is going to be right Mm -hmm. like it could just be in the trenches of hong kong kung fu film for the rest of it yeah and that she's questioning these things and that there's a reflection of like oh, what could her future hold? Like, will it be something like this? Because we didn't even talk about of why Ruan Lingyu committed suicide, which was because she was essentially hounded by the tabloids to the point that she felt that the only way to escape it was by ending her own life. Yes, she was caught in an extramarital affair. And we should point out that that extramarital affair was only because her husband like wouldn't give her a proper divorce mm-hmm. and then sued her afterwards, even though that it was all above the board before that. But like the tabloid just tore her apart And it was mostly because in the movie she made, New Women, she demonized the tabloids in that. Mm -hmm. And the tabloids had no one to go after. So they went after her Mm -hmm. and they caused the same thing to happen again. And when she passed away, supposedly it rocked China uh, like to its core. Yeah, it was a very well attended funeral. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, uh, I mean, supposedly other women committed suicide like because of that. (laughs) And the thing about Ruan Lingyu as well is that when the Cultural Revolution kind of rolled around in China, she was wiped from history books, essentially. Mm. And it wasn't until center stage that she was able to be reevaluated and shown how important she was in the history of Chinese culture. The Goddess, which was a monster hit in China, survived on only one print mm. that was preserved by um, a Chinese film archive. As we said earlier, only six of her films survive, and center stage is full of recreations of her films where it'll as caption say what the title is and it'll say film no longer available mm-hmm. which is so heartbreaking it is and they do it on purpose too like the subtitle pops up and then it says film no longer available yeah. at the bottom yeah and again if you're still listening i'm sorry if we got everything wrong <laughs> we tried our best we're, we're, yeah <laughs> we're two white guys <laughs> trying to expand our horizons <laughs> 
So, letters this week. Uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter was from a fellow named Nate. And it was a long one, so I'm not going to read all of it. He just goes, thanks for the latest episode. Verhoeven is the best. And then he just kind of launches into a counterpoint to our discussion about Showgirls. Saying that uh, Verhoeven, as a filmmaker, what he's kind of highlighting is that this stuff that you like is wrong. So like at the end, Robocop is like a fascist kind of ubermensch within a construct that a corporation is controlling him. Uh Or that like, you know, obviously Starship Troopers ends the way that it ends with, you know, the Nazis winning the war. But he also brings up Showgirls isn't supposed to be sexy. It is supposed to show how ugly and exploitative our economy and culture is, especially in regards to sex and the treatment of women. The failure of Showgirls isn't the content or that it tries to be bad, but is actually good. It is that Verhoeven completely misjudged the fish being able to see him satirizing the water in the fishbowl. He wants us to root for Nomi at the end of the movie in spite of all the awfulness that has taken place to get her to that point because her success is the realization of the American dream. She's even continuing her journey westward, for Christ's sakes. And just as Troopers uses framing device to indict American audiences' willingness to cheer for fascism, Showgirls does it to indicate our willingness to overlook exploitation and misery to cheer on for the illusion of the American dream, which is a big part of why all that exploitation and misery exists in the first place. This satire hits too close to home for most Americans, and instead of engaging it as it exists, i.e. America is just a crass and schlocky and banal as the movie, he's just holding up a mirror, it is instead framed as intentionally bad for reasons completely detached from its targets. I mean, the thesis that Nate here mentions in his letter is, I think, a perfectly like valid one. But I think that like when we talked about Showgirls, we said something very important, which is that Starship Troopers, as an action movie, it works. Mm-hmm. Like, it's exciting and you're involved in it. While Showgirls, I think one of the reasons that it doesn't work is that it's not sexy. Right. And that if it was sexy, at the end, you need to find that realization of like, oh, wow, like I'm enjoying this, but like it's wrong at the end of the day. Right. And I think that personally, the reason it doesn't work for me is that because it's not sexy, like I believe that what he's showing, like he wants you to be like, oh yeah, I'm really enjoying this. Not that it's a miserable experience. Right. I agree. All right. Well, we'll move on from there. Uh, But thank you, Nate. It's a good point. Hey, he goes, sorry for the long email. I love the show. Uh, hopefully we didn't uh, misattribute anything that you said when I had to summarize the email. P.S. Thanks again for the Matt Farley episode. That was amazing. Thanks again, Nate. Thank you. Speaking of Matt Farley, I have an email here that goes, hey guys, I've listened to your episode about me three times. <laughs> it's fantastic. I listen to it more, but I'm also working my way through all your older episodes. They are great. Bravo. I especially love the Orson Welles, Clint Eastwood, and Elaine May episodes. I love it. Keep up the good work, Matt Farley. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for your ladder and your body of work. And this final letter is from Edward Kelly. It goes, Dearest Will and Justin, I've been listening to the Important Cinema Club for a couple of months now, and I've been spending most of my time at work not working, but rather going through your archive. That's the prudent thing to do. Yes, let's bring down the economy. (laughs) It's been a funny experience to listen to so many episodes at once because I don't have nearly enough time to watch all the movies discussed, but I will have you know that my sister, who is my go-to movie-watching friend, and I now have a huge backlog that spans from the Soul Brothers of Kung Fu to Scorsese's Silence. (laughs) Your podcast also rekindled my love of Jackie Chan so I'm going through all the classics. As a kid who grew up in the Pierce Brosnan era of Bond, I'm also weirdly excited to watch The Foreigner no matter how mediocre it is. 
Good thing it's not mediocre and I, it's fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Couple of questions for you. Did you see Anna Biller's The Love Witch? I found it to be just captivating and often hilarious. Uh, I saw The Love Witch. I thought it was okay. Yeah, did you? I, you know what? I, uh, I need to see it again. Uh, so that I could make that judgment more uh, When we talked about it, because I remember you went to go see it in a movie theater, it's something that I would think that like would be an attraction to you, like this era of cinema. But you actually said that that's not really what you go towards, right? What I remember about The, the Love Witch was I found it a little bit distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it, I, I, I felt myself kind of holding it at arm's length. I have a lot of admiration for it. Patreon episode? Patreon episode. Yeah, I th- I'd be interested in taking another look at it. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting film. Um, that's a non-committal answer, purposely. <laughs> and the letter continues. Do you think we in the West have a tendency to be a little harder on Chinese films and their apparently heavy-handed propaganda? Has anything Jackie Chan said on screen any more numbingly patriotic than some of Clint Eastwood's work, really? I'm hoping to strike a nerve here. I found the important cinema club through Michael and Us, which I also love. Shout out to Luke the Savage Savage. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody call him that? I'm sure people have made that joke on his name before. Well, yes. I mean, uh, Luke Savage's original name was actually Luke Burowitz, but he had to change it to be more... <laughs> when uh, he was at Ellis Island. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll throw this to you, Will, because you have the politically-minded uh, podcast first. Do you think we're too hard on Jackie Chan? Well, I think Jackie Chan is... His propaganda films are unusually clumsy. Yes. And I think that China, as a whole, their, their big-budget patriotic blockbusters are unusually clumsy. That said, I mean, I think certain um, American blockbusters that sort of toe a kind of imperialist American party line are maybe... But they're more normalized for us, yeah, right? Yeah, although, but they're also, like, they're slicker and they're a little better at it. So in some ways, they can be more insidious. Yeah, like, Clint Eastwood doesn't come around and go, maybe we shouldn't have money go to the poor and just to the people that earn it. And if we give them more, it'll trickle down into the working class. I think that Clint Eastwood is... Uh, for the most part, a better filmmaker than late period Jackie Chan is. And that's probably the difference between kind of American propaganda and Chinese propaganda is that the Chinese version is so much more naked. Like it's ugly and it's right in your face. While, you know, Clint Eastwood, he throws in a little bit of uh, hot chocolate. A little bit of nuance. A little bit of moral nuance. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know, a movie like Zero Dark Thirty is, Mm -hmm. you know, can be interpreted as, you know, those filmmakers worked with the CIA and there's something maybe a little sinister about that. Or like Michael Bay making his movies and he goes, uh, we had the full participation of the army to get these new tanks on screen. I think 13 Hours is probably in certain ways every bit as clumsy as as a Chinese blockbuster. Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. And I think that there's just less of them in America than there are in China. Because yeah. every massive hit in China is a propagandistic blockbuster. And also in China, like the government is actually working on these movies. They have, yeah. they have more direct input. Whereas in America, like Hollywood studios will just make it on their own. <laughs> yeah. They just think people will come see it yeah. if they do this stuff. Yeah. But like a movie, like I forget what it was called. It was that like 12 men strong or whatever. It was like a Chris Hemsworth oh, picture. Yeah, 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 like yeah. that tanked at the box office. That would not happen in China because it would be the biggest opening ever. China would hire a bunch of peasants to go <laughs> see the movie to make sure that it made $100 million in its opening day. <laughs> and uh, last question, he says, how about a Sidney Lumet episode? 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, The Incomparable Network, all that later shit that I couldn't be bothered to go see, like the classic Vin Diesel, uh, Find Me Guilty. 
I remember having a pretty good time at Find Me Guilty, you know, but I haven't seen it in over a decade. We've definitely talked about doing a uh, uh, Our Pal Sydney episode. And, you know, as we go through our decade-long journey through <laughs> the important cinema club, we'll get there. We've got a lot of film history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're just going to do transcriptions and then just put them in encyclopedias that people can go find. You know, it's good to know that there are just so many filmmakers out there. Sometimes I worry, like, what if we run out? But no, I'm reminded every week there's just, you know, thousands and thousands of people to do. It's just as it's going to go along, it'll just be people we're even less familiar with. So yeah. we have to struggle. Yeah, we try to space out, you know, our uh, our, our faves. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on our Patreon this week, as per usual, it's Important Cinema Club podcast. Uh, you just search it on Patreon. It'll come up. We talked about everyone's favorite critic, Leonard Maltin. Specifically his movie guide, Rest in Peace. And so it allowed us to not only talk about the kind of role that it had in our upbringing as Cineas, but also the role that it had in culture at large. Mm-hmm. And we jump into a few other favorite movie guides that we had when we were growing up. So check that out. It's $5 a month. You get a new episode every week with me and Will and you'll also get four episodes every month of post-film discussions so it'll either be me and Will or me and somebody else little like 10 minute talks that we usually have when we come out of a new movie Mm -hmm. and those ones are posted online only four at a time so once we hit number five that first one's gonna disappear Mm -hmm. so become a Patreon subscriber now and also You should check out filmtrap.com because you can actually find not only the episodes, but every movie that we talked about with summaries, trailers, any lists that we mentioned. And there's a, um, a mailing list you can join where you can get other awesome stuff out of that. And you can follow me at DeClueJ on Twitter. And I'm at Will Sloan ESQ. And please follow me. I have a pathetic number of followers that I've had for the last few years. Wills in the thousands. I'm still floating around in like the high 500s. Yeah, and come on, we've got a bunch of listeners now. <laughs> like, I, yeah, we do. Like, yeah, just follow come me. On. Here's what you do. You follow me. You mute me right after. <laughs> Boom, they're on there. Everyone's real happy. People. And you can also follow my letterbox at Justin DeClue, where I basically catalog every movie that I see with a little blurb. So next week, Will, what are we doing? Uh, next week, we're, gonna, we're going to be talking about Todd Haynes. And why are we doing this? On one of the things that me and Will released, we actually told the listener to this thing, if you're listening right now, email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com, request a filmmaker, and we will do it. Well, somebody did. And if everybody's like, oh, I didn't know, I'm going to say, that thing is still out there. If one other person finds it and emails us, We'll also do whatever subject or filmmaker that they recommend. Mm -hmm. But we're going to do the winner episode next week. It's Todd Haynes, the director of Safe, I'm Not There, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. Mm -hmm. A filmmaker that I'm not that passionate about, even though that I do like his work. Yeah, I I feel similar. So, (laughs) but let's try it again. We're handcuffed together and we're going to do this Todd Haynes episode. Yeah, but until then, the balcony is closed. Oh no, this is what happens when Will gets to end the episodes. (laughs) I'm Will Sloan. My name is Justin DeClue. Thanks for listening. And we forgot to mention it while we were talking about the Patreon, but... We just posted our commentary track for Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour, and that's available to any $5 Patreon subscriber. 
So if you go to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and you become a subscriber, you'll be able to listen to the commentary track. We have it available as a downloadable MP3. And we also put up a link where the commentary is synced up with the movie so you can actually watch it as we are as well you know something we forgot to talk about when we were talking about paul verhoven was you know we were laughing about roger ebert's review and And how like oh everybody gets it now yeah and, and people always say about starship troopers oh it's so misunderstood but you know i was saying it's not misunderstood everybody knows it well actually it is a little bit misunderstood because two years ago uh, it was the subject of a Riff Tracks live event. Sold out in Toronto, I remember, because me and my friend uh, tried to go see it, and it just, like, no more tickets. I'm stunned you tried to go see it. My f- friend really wanted to see it, and I was trying to get more into this stuff. We had had a Mystery Science Theater 3000 marathon, so I was like, all right, we'll go see it. Even though that, like, Starship Troopers were riffing that, I was like, What? Why? Oh, you know what? They're probably smart enough to approach it from, like, a different angle than the one that you would expect. Nope. No, they regarded absolute straight ahead, bad movie, dumb studio movie. They didn't seem to have got the uh, satiric element. And this made me think, like, how do you feel when people like Mike Nelson, who's like the head of Riff Tracks, is undoubtedly the funnier of the two now three Mystery Science Theater 3000 hosts. I mean, we talked about it in the episode we did about Mystery Science Theater 3000, mm-hmm. of who we think is funnier. And I think that Mike is. He's like, there's more riffs because, uh, you know, it's down. And his... sharper riffs, perhaps. Exactly, mm-hmm. in his dry delivery. But as time has gone on, he has only shown that he has terrible taste when it comes to movies. Starship Troopers being a good example. And then there's another famous one that me and Will will not stop talking about. Riff Tracks uh, did Carnival of Souls. As a live show, I believe. Colorized. Yeah. And they did an interview with the AV Club when it was about to screen. And it is the most like... I I get traumatized whenever (laughs) I think about that interview. (laughs) Because essentially the AV Club interviewer goes wait do you think this is like actually bad or like are you approaching it from a different way and every one of the riff tracks guys goes no 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 it's bad like people don't realize it's bad because they haven't sat and watched it recently but we did and it's terrible oh i don't know (laughs) well you know the thing about mike nelson is uh he's a quite conservative man both i think in his politics and just in his work you can see it like if you read his writing if you listen to the riff tracks i think he's very funny yes but, i think he's very funny as well yeah. but but like he has a conservative outlook i uh, mean he has a podcast that you found like a christian themed podcast yeah which i haven't listened to i don't know if i can bear it because <laughs> you think he'll have all the riffs on it uh <laughs> yeah uh, does this make you reevaluate him though well a little bit i mean i think his point of view I mean, he's he's very funny, and I I you know I grew up loving mystery science theater, and there are even a lot of riff tracks that I really mm. like. Yeah, it just makes me think that like one of the issues I remember bringing up with Mystery Science Theater three thousand is that I feel like they're being mean toward the movie, and you know any fan of the show will go, well, they actually love the movie, or they love like this kind of experience. This is a. Uh, difference in the Mike and the Joel eras, Mm -hmm. I think, and in the outlook of Mike and Joel as hosts. You know, Joel Hodgson, this uh, sort of weird prop comic guy (laughs) who who sort of has a Pee Wee Hermanish love of pop culture and and a sort of Pee Wee Hermanish comic sensibility. He likes these movies as sort of weird 
um, outsider art artifacts upon which to build a meta commentary. Mike is like the bully in school that's like really funny with his jabs. Uh-huh. And it's funny when you're sitting outside of it. But then when you think about it for a second, you're like, oh, wait, no, that's really mean. But I think he has a pretty conservative understanding of art. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he, you know, I've read interviews with him where, you know, he likes classical music. Yeah. You know, he uh, likes the classic movies yeah. that I, have been uh, canonized. And look, we all like those things. Yeah. But yeah, like it takes a certain kind kind of uh imagination like you have to think outside the box a little bit to understand what carnival of souls is doing and you don't even have to sit like you don't have to think that far out of the box like the fact that you can approach that movie and go oh it's slow and it's boring and like it's not even that scary is like a 10 year old's opinion or someone who hasn't evolved beyond that point because we were talking about the fact that like Mike Nelson could never enjoy an Ed Wood film on any other level than like, haha, this is bad. Yeah, and that's and that's so sad to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But at least he's funny when he does his riffs. But I guess the lesson to be learned is, uh, as you said to me when I when I shared the link to his podcast, you either die a hero <laughs> or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Batman. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite philosopher. <laughs> <laughs>